um, spent a lot of time this week thinking about Ephesians chapter 6. That just seems to be uh, the place that the Lord has uh, drawn me to uh, more than other things. I've read multiple things and so grateful for so many of you that have poured out such incredible encouragement and prayers and scriptures to me and to the elders and to the staff. But uh, for some reason, the Lord kept bringing me back to Ephesians 6. Um, There's a thousand places that we could go um, to, to preach and to um, draw our hearts today, but uh, we will trust that that is what the Lord has for us, and we will trust that uh, not only will He use that, but He will speak to us through that this morning. Uh, I know we're dropping right in the middle of the, actually, in, in the end of a book. Ephesians is a letter that was uh, inspired by God Himself, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul uh, to a local church in Ephesus. Uh, there's six chapters. The first half of the book is just gospel. It, it's just Paul hammering out what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died in the place of sinners, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him. It's just gospel. And then he shifts to the second half of the book being uh, implications of the gospel. Because we know the gospel is true, this is how that works in relationships. This is how that works in marriage. This is how this uh, functions at work in your soul. He talks about the implications of the gospel in our lives. But then in chapter 6, it's his closing. It's his closing words, closing thoughts, closing remarks uh, to a church that he deeply loves. He's writing this from prison. Paul had been arrested for, uh, functionally for sharing the gospel and believing the gospel and planting churches. And he's writing from prison to a church that he loves, talks about the gospel, talks about the implications. And then in closing, uh, he says this, Ephesians chapter 6 Uh, We are going to be uh, in verses 10 through about 18, I believe. So towards the end of the book, this is what he says, finally, finally. Okay, he's talked about like the beauty of the most incredible story ever told, the most incredible truth that could ever be known, the gospel, and how it shapes and affects every corner of our lives. But then he gets to the end, and he says, finally, and, and for some reason, Paul saw fit to close with that for them. But God saw fit to close that book this way for us because he knew this would be read for centuries, for millennium. And I think it's interesting that he closes this way. The ending, the finally, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most important thing. It does because like what could what could overshadow the gospel in Ephesians chapter one? So it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important thing. But I think there is something in Paul's intent that he wants what he's about to tell us to linger and to settle in our minds and to be a a lasting reminder as he closes out this book. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and put on the whole armor of God. Now, why would Paul say that? Right? Why would Paul say, why is he warning us to be strong? Why is he encouraging us to be strong? Uh, Why does Paul push us to access God's strength, not to just muster up what strength that we have? Why does he push us towards uh, a different strength from God himself? And why is he telling us to put on armor? If we could invite the Apostle Paul, and I wish we could, to come preach at Redeemer, and he were to come uh, to Midland and hop up on the stage and uh, open his Bible, which would be a strange thing because he wrote a large chunk of it. And if he were to preach and if he were to say, 
to you, just like look you square in the eye and say, uh, it's time to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God. What would you expect? Why would we believe that Paul would say something like that? Why would Paul say, put on some armor? The very succinct answer is, because life is war. We are not in a neutral world. We are not in a neutral setting. Uh, This world that we have been born into is the battleground for some pretty incredible spiritual forces, a war with dark and light, good and evil, God and Satan. And Paul knows it, and so he finishes this book by urging us to finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and put on the whole armor of God. Here's why we need to be aware of that. Here's why we need to put into action uh, the armor that Paul is going to invite us to. We keep going. He says, that you may, like, like th- this is why we need to access God's strength, put on the armor, because if we do, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Meaning there is a being that is a, a strong, evil, powerful, spiritual being that has plans, has schemes. Uh, in verse 12, he says, for, which means because. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul acknowledges finally at the end to put in our minds, to settle in our hearts, to linger on this, that we are in a real war with real evil, real enemy, real casualties. This world is a spiritual battleground, and sometimes in the West, I I think we can very easily be lulled into a sense that this is a neutral place. Uh, and, um, you know, even some of the things that C.S. Lewis has, uh, has shared in some of his writings that uh, wouldn't that be Satan's tactic if he could just convince a whole swath of people that there is, in fact, no battle going on, then he, in fact, has won. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, Every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. You see that from Genesis to Revelation, a spiritual battle taking place in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan shows up to steal, kill, and destroy all the way to the end of the book. And praise God that God gave us the end of the book where we see that Jesus demolishes him and crushes his head and he, he defeats Satan, evil, sin, death, and the grave once and for all. But here we live in the middle. Every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. You, you see this, I mean, all the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve heard this, this command from God, and then Satan shows up, and he twists it just a little bit and says, well, did God really say that? And then all hell breaks loose, brokenness ensues, and there's a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that God says he is going to send basically Jesus to invade humanity and to crush the head of Satan through the seed of a woman. And then what you have with Jesus, like we have Advent, we have, we have Christmas coming up shortly, when we celebrate that Jesus, in fact, invaded human history, became a man, left heaven. And 
someone shared with me this week, I think it is, it's, it's powerful, that that first cry from little baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem, it was a battle cry against Satan. Like, do you, do you remember the story when he's born... Like the spiritual world, they, they knew what was taking place, and so Herod decides, well, we can't have this. We have to put to death every young male child that's two years old or less because we have to make sure that we, we find this, this, this warrior that has been promised for hundreds of years. Was that Herod acting? Yes, but really that was Satan acting because it was a declaration of war against him. Jesus had shown up. He is the warrior. There's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Every soul in this room is a battleground. Every marriage, every family, every church. Did Jesus not say that he has left the church here to push back the gates of hell, to not be defensive and hope that uh, the enemy doesn't defeat us, but to be offensive. And he promised that the gates of hell would not even prevail against the church. Every courtroom, every classroom, every boardroom, there's no neutral ground. Every election, every policy, every law, every decision that's made in a pregnancy clinic, there is no neutral ground. Everything God loves, Satan hates. Everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. For every promise that God has made and given to us, there is a cleverly orchestrated lie from the other side. Jesus said himself, the thief, the enemy, Satan himself, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life. They're at war. And so this is what really the, the Holy Spirit drew my attention to multiple times this week. That the world that we live in is not a neutral place. We've been dropped into a battle zone, a spiritual battlefield. We can't go around it. Instead, we must prepare to face it. Which is what Paul is saying when he says, finally, put on the armor of God. I, I reminded when Jesus says, I do, like, that there was... There was this question kind of when he was going to uh, rise from the grave and ascend into heaven, when he uh, would call someone to make them a Christian, why doesn't he just pull us out of the world, take us home immediately? How many of y'all would love that? Yes. Like, I believe the gospel. Boom. I'm gone. I'm with Jesus in glory forever. None of the marks of sin and brokenness. That would be a amazing why does he not do that? Why has he left his people here? He says, I, when he's praying, I, I believe this is John 17, the night he was betrayed. He says, I don't ask, God, that you keep my disciples out of the world. That's why they're here. They're an outpost of heaven behind enemy lines to push back the darkness. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them, he says, from the evil one. So the goal of what Paul is saying a couple things it is not. It is not, uh, he's not asking us to muster up what strength that we have uh, for the battle uh, that is within our own hearts and our families and our, uh, in our marriage. He's not asking us to just do our best and muster up our own strength, uh, but to somehow access God's strength. And that's a very different thing. I've learned much about that practically this week. What does it mean uh, to rest from our own strength and our own ability and truly rest in God's strength and God's ability? 
uh, to somehow recognize um, the armor that he has given us, that he has uh, not only made suitable, but made ready for us to wear so that we might not just survive and not just endure, but to push the cause of Christ forward in a broken world. How? Here we go. Verse 13. How do we do this? How do we live as faithful exiles, as members of the kingdom of heaven in a place that is not our home, in a place that is deeply marred by brokenness? How do we be faithful behind enemy lines? Verse 13, he says, therefore, in light of all, in light of life being a, a battleground, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You're going to need all of it. You can't just grab a sword and go running into battle without a helmet. You don't want to have a helmet and a breastplate and show up and have no, like, like it's important that we get all of this. And so normally, and I've preached this multiple times uh, in, in my life through this text. In fact, I thought I just preached this the other day here and I looked at my notes and the other day was 2016. Goodness how time flies. But, but like normally uh, when, when someone preaches this or even when we've preached it, uh, we, we string this out for, you know, four, five, six weeks because there's so much in it. Uh, we're going to cover the whole thing today uh, b- because we need all of it today. Amen? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I, I, I didn't have time to dig down and unpack, but there's something profound, I believe, behind the word stand because he just keeps talking about it. He says that he says, uh, withstand, uh, that you will be able to stand firm. In the next verse, he says, stand, therefore. There's something about the, 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 the God's provision and his armor that gives us the ability to stand firm in a world that is evil and chaotic around us, that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand. What, what he is pulling from these next few moments is it, it's, the, it's the picture, it's the imagery of a Roman soldier, okay? Uh, and there was probably one standing next to him. Like you imagine him with a papyrus scroll and a, and a, and a, and a pen that's a, you know, a feathered ink pen, and, and he's trying to write to a church that he loves and prepping them for uh, a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And here's this soldier standing next to him. The Roman soldiers were the most formidable force on the planet. Uh, this was kind of at the tail end of what we call the Pax Romana, if you remember um, your, your world history, that means there was about 500 years of uh, pretty relative global peace because the, the Roman soldiers had dominated the globe. They were the, one of the most formidable uh, forces on the planet. And then um, he has one standing next to him, and you almost see that he just kind of looks at him uh, and, and looks at the armor that this soldier has and begins to uh, apply that to our life, use that uh, as an analogy. If, if Paul was writing, maybe today perhaps he would have a picture of a of an of a Navy SEAL or some other special force and just look through uh, the different pieces of their armor that might make them um, able to do what, they're do what they do. And so he uses a Roman soldier uh, as, uh, as the metaphor, and he says this. Stand, verse 14, stand, there it is again, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, that's where Paul starts talking to Christians. If you're going to navigate and stand firm in a world that is a spiritual battleground, you're going to have to have a belt of truth. He goes towards truth, uh, which he says is God's word. 
All right. Truth is so incredibly important. You need to know what is true. Uh, if we're going to navigate this and stand firm, we're going to have to know what is true. Uh, God is truth, and how Satan attacks is by speaking lies and twisting truth. That, that's how he works. He does that in our hearts. He does that in our minds, in our conscience, with our families. Like, he, the, like the Bible calls him the father of lies. And lies and truth are at the heart of the battle that we're in the middle of. And he's like, you, you've got to put on the belt of truth. Satan will lie about you. Okay. Um, to, Satan says, he says very different things, I think, to Christians and non-Christians. To non-Christians, Satan will speak things like, you're fine. You're okay. You're not that bad a person. You don't need Jesus. That's the lie he'll sell to a non-Christian. To the Christian, he sells more like uh, condemnation, that you're, you're not enough. Jesus can't protect you. You're not okay. Uh, he, he has different lies that he has prepped for each of us, but he lies about you. He'll lie about God. Well, God's not powerful. God's not loving. God doesn't care for you. God doesn't know. And we've got to have a belt of truth to know what is true. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. If we don't know the truth, then at some point we're in some type of bondage to a lie. He says, put on the belt of truth. Second thing, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Think Kevlar vest, right? If he was looking at a Navy SEAL, he would say, all right, get ready because you're going to need something to protect your heart. You're going to need some type of bulletproof jacket, Kevlar vest. And he says that this is what it is, righteousness. And that's like whatever he's talking about, which I'll do my best to unpack, uh, it, it, it's, it's the key to protecting your heart against some spiritual attacks. But what he is not saying, okay, th this is so important. He is not saying, listen, if you are going to navigate the spiritual battle that we're in, you're going to have to ha be, be a, a sinless person. You're going to have to do your best and try to be righteous and don't mess up be so full of good works, just be a good Christian. Do, that's, like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it, almost the opposite of that. Like the, the breastplate of righteousness is, is not our righteousness. It's to put on the righteousness of Christ, which is at the heart of the gospel itself. That's the great exchange. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That we give Jesus our sin and He gives us His righteousness. This is so important. Let me tease this out because if we don't get this, if we're trying to like navigate this spiritual battle with the breastplate of our own righteousness, what that does is cause us to go into image protection, to hide our sin because like, well, if I'm trying to deflect all these these attacks launched on my heart with my own goodness, nobody can know when I'm broken. Nobody can know when I'm a sinner. Nobody, And so it just, like a breastplate of our own righteousness causes us, like because we're, we're going to sin, right? It causes us 
to go into hiding because we're trying to protect our image. It, it's, it's, it's the worst thing on the planet to try to walk into battle with the breastplate of our own righteousness. It means you have to manage public perception. It means you have to hide when you sin nobody can know. And it's such an incredibly freeing thing. Makes our hearts bulletproof when we are clothed and we have the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. Because if that's the case, we are free. We're free to be honest, free to deal with our sin, free to repent, free to confess. Because our our righteousness doesn't hinge on what we do, it hinges on what He did for us in our place. Y'all see how this is so important that we put on the breastplate of His righteousness. How do we get it? How do you, how do you get righteousness? This is at the core of the gospel itself. Um, this reaches all the way back to, to Abraham. The Old Testament Genesis says that it was a cre- his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He was uh, counted righteous. He got the shield uh, or, the, or the, the breastplate of righteousness. How did he get it? Because he was a good person? No, it says he trusted God. He put his faith in God, and so God gave him his righteousness. His faith was credited to him as righteousness, and that's been the case from the beginning to the end. If you're going to be righteous in God's sight, it starts with what, what theologians would call a positional righteousness, that we are righteous because Jesus gave us his. You with me? He lived a perfect, sinless life, decided to trade with us, takes our sin, gives us his righteousness, and then we are seen as righteous, not because of our actions, but because of our position in Christ. And what that does is drives personal righteousness. It actually makes us holy because then we can deal with our sin. We don't have to hide from it. It doesn't define us. We can turn. We can repent. We can confess. And so it actually leads to a a deep sense of personal holiness and personal righteousness. But it has to come first from positional righteousness in Christ. Verse 15, he keeps going. And as for your feet... How many of y'all spent quite a bit of time picking your shoes this morning? Some of you, maybe. I do such a pathetic job of picking out my shoes. The elders had to buy me some nice shoes for Christmas last year, and so I wear them every Sunday. And I hope to get a new pair. Write that down. This Christmas. Like, shoes are so important. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you have been or know somebody that's been in the military, you know boots and socks are so incredibly important. Uh, if you are an athlete, you know shoes are important. If you run track, you know shoes are important. Uh, if you are a, a model, you know shoes are important, I guess. You know, if you do backcountry, uh, backpacking, elk hunting, mountain climbing, whatever it might be, shoes are very, very, very important. And, and that's like the shoes of a Roman soldier uh, are one of the things that set them apart from other uh, armies on the planet at the time. They had these unique shoes called Caligas, Caligas, I honestly don't know how to pronounce it, uh, but you've seen them in the movies. They were uh, somewhat of a, a, a stiff leather sole with actual spikes or cleats on the bottom, and they could strap them all the way up their calves, and that gave them quite a bit of an advantage over their uh, adversaries. 
because they, if they got into hand-to-hand combat, they could dig in. They had traction when their enemies didn't. If their enemy decides they're done, they're going to run, uh, they could run faster. So actually, if he's looking at the, the, this Roman soldier standing next to him, he's going to get to the shoes and be like, God, their shoes are important. And this is how he applies that to your life. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. They would have to had had taken the time to sit down and to lace up and to strap up their shoes. This I, I think this is what Paul's saying. To navigate the spiritual world that we are in, one of the things that you can do to be prepared for whatever may face you is to take time to understand the gospel. That's fairly basic, fairly simple, but as we understand and believe the gospel, that becomes the traction that we have for facing a lot of the battles that we will face. Now, I was thinking about this, that Paul, he, he, he always goes back to the gospel when he's helping people navigate the Christian life. So, in a, a, a chapter before this, Ephesians 5, this is kind of the prototypical chapter when you want to learn about a husband and wife. And he doesn't look at the role of a husband and the role of a wife and say, now do that because psychology would say that'll help you have a healthy marriage. What does he do? He takes it back to the gospel. He says, no, do this because of the gospel. We've been walking through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for the past four weeks. Uh, he's trying, Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to loosen their grip on their money and their possessions. And he doesn't say, hey, you should be more generous because don't you remember the Old Testament command about tithing? He doesn't go to the law. He goes to the gospel. He's like, because you know. Because Jesus Christ was rich. For your sake, he became poor that we might inherit all the riches. Like He just always goes back to the gospel. The more you know the gospel, the more you are prepared to navigate the world that we live in. As for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You need to know the gospel. You need to know about the grace of Jesus. You know about faith in Him. You know about sin. You know how the gospel works because that's what prepares us to navigate life. Verse 16. And in all circumstances, everybody say all. I looked in the Greek. Actually, I didn't. If I would have looked in the Greek, do you know what that word means? All. It means everything. It means good, bad, ugly, hard, difficult, painful, lovely, everything. And Paul had been goodness through all sorts of ups and downs, endured just the full range of emotions, not just on his journey with Jesus, but on his journey with churches. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That is very... colorful language that is very strong language. Paul is saying like not just darts. Like he doesn't say your enemy is going to throw darts at your eye. Like he's trying to impress on us that like there are spiritual forces after our hearts. And he says like uh, extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Like the evil one's not just throwing darts. They're on fire. Like what does that mean? God And Satan are at war, we're in the middle, and Satan is going to lob 
fiery darts at your heart. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you protect yourself against that? Take up the shield of faith. He says the shield of faith. This is what the Apostle John says in John, 1 John 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Which means, if, he, if I could translate that a little bit, everyone who is a Christian will win in this battle at the end. Okay? That's what he, for everyone who has been born of God, that's a Christian. You have been born as a human, but then you've been born again as a son or a daughter of God. You overcome the world. Like you win. In the end, we stand. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's just this tight connection between faith in Jesus and that being our victory. We don't have to win. We, what do we do? We trust Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. Our faith becomes our shield. And you know this. We've talked about this so often. It's not necessarily the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith. He keeps going. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. You need a helmet, right? Like you don't want to get your shoes on, get your sword, and go running into hand-to-hand combat. You're going you're to need a helmet. And Paul looks at the helmet, writes to the Christians, like the helmet for us is salvation. You need to be saved by Jesus. Right? Well, I, when I was growing up, that was the term we used all the time for what it means for somebody to become a Christian, that they were saved, right? They were saved. What does that mean? That Jesus saved us. Like when we put our faith in Jesus, he saves us. That means at the very basis, the word salvation means taken out of danger, right? There's a very big difference between salvation and probation, Okay, salvation means you're taken out of danger. Probation means do your best, and if you fail, you're back in danger. We're not saved by works that would just be probation. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ, which is a complete salvation. He saves. You need to be saved. You need to be saved from Satan. You need to be saved from your sin. Uh, most of us need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from the penalty of like. There's a whole list of things we need to be saved from. And good news, that Jesus is a Savior, That's who he is. That's what he does. Like even even the the promises of the Messiah that would come at Christmas talk about him as a savior. He shows up, he says, he's, he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. How do you become, how does Jesus save you? You rely on him, you trust him, you Confess your sin to him. You put your faith in him, and he saves those who come to him. That's it. You don't have to bring anything to the table. And, and so, in some measure, Paul says that that becomes then a helmet for us, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. How many of you are just waiting for an offensive peace? There it is. That's your only one, okay? Our intellect is not our offensive weapon or good looks, you know, whatever it is. Like, we don't bring anything else to the spiritual fight that's an offensive weapon besides the Word of God itself. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're at war. You're going to need a sword. You're going to know how to wield it. You're going to need to know how to wield it. 
What does that mean? We, we harp on this all the time. You need to know your Bible. You need to read your Bible. You need to understand. How, I mean, isn't that how Jesus dealt with spiritual warfare in his life? When Satan comes to tempt him and attack him, he just pulls out a sword and says, it is written. Because he knew it, he had memorized it, he had meditated on it, he understood it, he had spent time getting to know his weapon. You're going to need a sword. How do you know when Satan's lying to you? Pull out your sword. How do you know when Satan's deceiving you? Don't Google it. Pull out your sword. Like we're going to need some weapons. The weapon that Jesus has given us of of an offensive nature is the sword of the Spirit. That's how we deal with lies. That's how we deal with temptation. Doesn't Corinthians tell us that there is no temptation given us but that which is common to man and God will give us a way to stand under it? If you don't read that, you don't know that. You're tempted. You think, i got to give in. No, you don't. Not if you read your Bible. Lies, temptation. How do you deal with condemnation? Whether it's coming from within your own heart or from without, from another person or from uh, some spiritual being, like how do you know what to do when you feel condemned that you're not good enough, you've made a mess, whatever? Does not Romans 8, 1 say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? We we need our sword. What about guilt, anxiety, shame, discouragement? You fight all those battles with the Word of God. In verse 18, he winds it up saying this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying. How many times? All times. I looked it up. No, I didn't. But it still means all, right? Good times, bad times, ups and downs. What do we do? Uh, we, we pray. But he doesn't even just say pray. He says pray at all times in the Spirit. God has given us as His children, as His people, the Holy Spirit. A lot of times when I'm just confused or beat down, I just kind of listen to Tim Keller sermons nonstop. I was listening to some Keller sermons this week, and he said something. Uh, I don't even remember, honestly, what he was preaching on, because just this idea just hit me and, and struck me. And he said this, and I'll, I'll say it, and then I'll, I'll do my best to explain it. He, he says, if you could get in a time machine and go back and witness the resurrection of Jesus... And who would not want to do that? You know, sometimes we have this thought like, man, if I, like, all my problems would go away, I would have so much faith if I could just have physically seen the resurrection. But we know what happened to people. Like, some people physically saw the resurrection and moved on with life. And it didn't have the effect that we, that we think it would. It's it was still the most important event that's ever happened in human history. Proves that Jesus is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. But you could physically in a time machine go back, witness the resurrection, and he says, and that would not be as transforming as an experience of receiving the Holy Spirit right now. Now, they work together, obviously. But we need the Holy Spirit inside of us. What does He do? He comforts us from the inside. He directs us from the inside. He even lets us know about sin. He convicts us from the inside. 
And so what, what Paul is saying, and we'll, we'll close with this, praying at all times in the Spirit, this is what that word or that phrase literally means. It means pray with the help of or in connection to. It means when we pray, and this is Romans 8, like when we pray, we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to, to shape us, to, uh, to even pray for us. He guides us. He empowers us. He directs us, our lives and our prayers, according to His will. That's what Paul is inviting us to do, and honestly, that's what we're going to do in these next few minutes. Uh, we're we're going to take some time. We've carved out a, a chunk of time in the service this morning to just simply pray. Um, and, and so maybe uh, this is a new thing for you. Uh, you might just have some time just to bow your head, just to pray on your own. Um, who knows what the Lord may bring to your mind and your heart um, that you pray. Uh, you might circle up with a, a, a roommate or a spouse or some people from your community group. You can feel free to move chairs around uh, in the next few minutes. The band's going to come up, uh, just going to play something uh, soft in the background. And I want to invite you to pray, to pray. Let me open us up. Lord, we need you. We, we always, always, always need you, whether we are aware of it or not. We need you. We need you to confront us in our sin. We need you to remind us of your gospel and your grace. We need you to remind us of the hope that we have as an anchor in the storm in Christ. We need you to pray for us when we don't know what to pray. We need you to remind us of your word. We need you to put steel in our spine and grace in our hearts. We need you, we need you, we need you. So I pray as your people lift up their hearts and their thoughts that you would listen, that you would move, that you would act, that you would answer. Help us in these next few moments to truly pray at all times in the spirit. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have opened up a pathway for us to talk straight to God, our Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.